Take a Bible out this morning and find Psalm 119. 119. There's some notes on an outline in your bulletin. If you like to follow along there, when we read the scriptures, it'll be up on the screen in just a minute. But if you have a Bible or you can find one in front of you where you're seated, find Psalm 119. This is week four of four in Psalm 119. We've spent an entire month in this psalm because it is the longest chapter in the entire Bible, the longest psalm, longest chapter in the Bible. It has 176 verses, and depending on how you count it up, at least 171 of those verses make some reference or mention of the Bible itself. And there's a number of different words used. We've, we've read these and we've talked about them. Sometimes the Bible is called testimonies or ways or precepts or statutes, commandments, law, rules, promise. Several others are used. But the entire thing is really a reflection on the Bible itself. And not only is it a reflection, but it's a poem. It's one long acrostic poem, and we've talked about this for several weeks now. Each section is, is started with a word that Each line begins with a a letter of the Hebrew alphabet all through the 22 sections, the 22 different uh, letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And if you wanted to compare Psalm 119 lengthwise to some other books in the Bible, it's about the same length as the book of Ruth or the book of James or even the book of Philippians, all very similar. If you haven't ever sat down and read all the way through Psalm 119, we've taken it over four Sundays, you ought to spend a few minutes this afternoon just reading Psalm 119 from beginning to end. Maybe as you read, you could mark all of the words uh, that refer to the Bible, testimonies, precepts, commandments. You could go through and count those up. If you read all the way through it, it'd take you about 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes to read it from beginning to end, thinking about it, reflecting on it, not rushing through it. So maybe that's something you want to do uh, after this morning now that we've, we've finished up Psalm 119. So we're going to read the last few stanzas, and then we'll pray, and then we'll break down each stanza and sort of talk about what each stanza emphasizes as it talks about the Word of God. So we're going to begin in Psalm 119, verse 137, the Sade section, and then we'll read through the end of the psalm. The Word of God says this, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. With my whole heart I cry, Answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose 
They are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commandments. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you. And let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning to to not only stand in awe of you, but to stand in awe of your word, as the psalmist has, has written. Help us to be humble before your word. Help us to see truth in your word. And Father, help us to apply this last section of Psalm 119 to our lives. Help us to see how it points to Christ. Help us to see how it ought to change us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin with a rhetorical question. That's one that you don't answer out loud. Why do you believe the Bible is God's word? I just want you to think about that. You're here on a Sunday morning. You could be doing a number of different things. I'm going to assume that most of you would agree that the Bible is God's word. There may be some of you who are skeptical, who question, who doubt, who don't think that this book that we've read from this morning is actually the word of God revealed to us. But I bet most of you on a Sunday morning you say, I believe the Bible is God's word. And I just want you to think about why do you believe that? And I'll just throw out a few answers. There's many good reasons to believe that the Bible is God's word, but here's a few possibilities. Maybe it's the consistency 
of the scriptures, that it's consistent, is written over thousands of years, written by dozens of different authors, written on at least three different continents, written in multiple languages, and yet it tells one story from beginning to end. And maybe you look at that and you say, there's no way all of these people writing in all of these different times and places and languages, we put all these books together and they all fit together. So maybe you say it's because it's consistent from beginning to end. Maybe some of you would say it's the conformity of Scripture. And what I mean by that is that what we read here conforms to how we experience the world. There's some faiths, and I won't mention any at this point, not to get too sidetracked, but there's some faiths when you read what they believe and then you look at your everyday experience in life, you say, that just doesn't seem to match up. When, when a, a far eastern faith tells me that suffering is not real, well, it sure feels real. It just doesn't conform to my experience. And maybe when you read the scriptures, you say, these are people just like me. In my Sunday school class, we talked about Elijah this morning and one of the dark nights of his soul. And we looked at that and we said, we can relate to that. We've been there. We've been disillusioned and disappointed. So maybe you read the scriptures and it conforms to your experience. Maybe it's prophecy. You look at the Bible and you look at the prophecies in the Old Testament and even some that Jesus talked about in the New Testament and you see how many of those prophecies have already been fulfilled in history and you look at the time spans involved, centuries and centuries between prediction and prophecy and actual fulfillment and you say it just it has to be. There's no other way that those things could come to pass. Maybe your reason for believing that this is God's word is the manuscripts, the ancient copies of the scriptures that we have. I don't know if you know this, but when you go back and you look at ancient manuscripts we have of ancient texts, for example, take Homer's Iliad or the Odyssey. We have a handful of manuscripts and we sort of piece them together and match them all up, a handful. Other ancient documents are similar. Maybe we have three or four or five, a dozen if we're lucky. When you come to the manuscripts we have for the the Bible, there's thousands upon thousands upon thousands. They're everywhere. And you take all of them and you piece them together and you say they're telling the same story. It all fits together and it makes sense. And maybe when you look at that historically, that convinces you that the Bible is God's word. Maybe it's a, an experience issue. Maybe it's the power of God's word. Maybe you would just sort of set the intellectual arguments aside and you would just say, I know how it's changed my life. I know how it's changed the lives of people that I'm related to or people that I'm friends with and I've seen its power at work and I believe that it's God's word. Maybe you just have childlike faith and you just say, I just believe it. And if that's you, can I just tell you there's a theological word for that? You don't have to just sort of feel like, well, I don't know about any of those others. I just guess I always believe it. It's called the self-attestation of scripture. And theologians have talked about it for centuries. When you read the Bible, you're just convinced and convicted that it is God's word. That's part of the the work of the Holy Spirit, that as you read the scriptures, that the spirit inspired, he illumines them to you and he convicts you and convinces you that it is, in fact, the word of God. You realize there are many, many people who do not believe that the Bible is the word of God. Many, many people, billions of people on this earth who look to other so-called sacred writings, sacred scriptures, and they think that it is God's word. But as we gather together as the body of Christ, 
We believe that this book is God's breathed out word. And when we gather for worship, this is important, we gather around this book. We gather together for worship around this book. We don't come together and just say, well, what do you feel like we ought to do today? Well, what do you feel like is true today? We don't come in here and sort of wet our finger to the cultural winds. Well, what does the world tell us we're supposed to believe today? Which way is the wind blowing? Are we going to line up this way? Are we going to line up that way? We don't gather together around things that we've read from books that we bought at Mardell or Lifeway or the Christian bookstore. We don't just take any book that has the label Christian on it or Jesus on it or God on it and say, well, this is true. Somebody wrote this. It must be true. They think that God impressed this. We don't gather around those books. We gather around this book. And the things that we believe and the things that we do, we hope, are increasingly grounded in this book, in God's Word. And we've talked about it for several weeks now as we looked at Psalm 119, truth about God's Word. And this morning as we wrap up, I want you to see five simple truths about the Word of God that ought to impact us and change us as individual followers of Christ and as a church family. So here we go. Number one, five truths about the Word of God. God's Word is righteous. It's righteous. Verse 137, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Verse 142, your righteousness is righteous forever. Verse 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. Righteousness is a Bible word, and you see part of the definition up in verse 137. It just means it's right It is truth. It is right. It's virtuous. It's good. It's excellent. And the psalmist is saying, because God is righteous, his word is righteous. In other words, we listen to God's word, not only because there's a reward when you listen to his word. We've talked about some of those ideas in Psalm 119. Taking the reward aside, we listen to God's word because it's right. It just is right. So to help you understand, understand this and make sense of it, go back to first grade, okay, in your mind. Picture your classroom where you went to school. I'm picturing Belmar Elementary, Miss Perkins' class, and we're sitting there at the desks, first grade, and Miss Perkins says, take out your big chief tablet and a pencil, and we're going to have a math test, and she's going to write the questions on the board, and we're going to write down these questions and answers. And the first one that she writes on the board is two plus two. So you got your big chief tablet, you got your number two, you write it down, number one, two plus two, and then you write equals, and the answer is four. Why do you write four? Well, you want a good grade. You want Miss Perkins to give you a hundred, so you're not going to write down something that's not right. You want the reward of a good grade. But hopefully, as you go back in your mind, you also write it down because it's right. It's true. That's factually what the answer is. And the psalmist is saying, look, throughout Psalm 119, there's many benefits that will come into your life when you listen to God's word and when you follow God's word. Many benefits, many blessings. Aside from all of that, apart from all of that, it's right. It is righteous forever, and it will not change. 
This is bedrock underneath your feet. We come to God's word and we believe with, with the psalmist that God's word is righteous. Secondly, it demands obedience. This is the kof section. God's word demands obedience. We have to be careful here, but I want you to see what he says in verse 145 and 146. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. And look at verse 146. I call to you, save me, comma, that, save me, so that I may observe your testimonies. There's no confusion in the psalmist's mind about the role of obedience in his salvation. He doesn't think that I'm going to keep all of God's words and in response, he's gonna save me. I'm gonna be good enough, obedient enough, right enough, moral enough so that God's only recourse is to then give me salvation. He comes to God first and says, I'm crying to you to save me. It's an act of your grace. You don't have to do it. You can do it. You're powerful enough to do it. But I'm looking to you to save me. And if you do that, my response, not what's going to twist your arm into saving me, but my response after you save me is, verse 146, that I may observe your testimonies. God's word demands obedience. It doesn't lay it out as a condition for our salvation. But when God works salvation in a person's life, obedience is the natural outcome. You see it in the Old Testament, Psalm 119, and you see it in the New Testament. Hold your spot in Psalm 119, flip over to the right, find the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. This is a passage we've read lately. It's one that you're familiar with. Ephesians 2, verse 8, 9, and 10 could not be more clear, a mirror passage to what we just read in Psalm 119. Ephesians 2, verse 8. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, a church that he loved. And he says in verse 8, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. That's the first part of Psalm 119, 146, where he says, I cry to you, save me. It's by your grace and it's through faith is not according to my works, verse 9, not a result of works so that no one may boast, verse 10. We're God's workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians says two things about your salvation. It says that God prepared your salvation from the foundation of the world. And it says that on the other side of your salvation, he prepared good works for you to walk in. He calls you to obedience. And the psalmist understands that in Psalm 119. So a lot of you guys are on social media, Facebook, Twitter, different things like that. In the last month or maybe two months, I've seen an article shared and talked about and posted. I can't even share the title of the article with you on Sunday morning because it's intentionally crude and it's not appropriate for a Sunday morning crowd. But it's posted on a Christian site written by a believer and it's got this crude title and it's supposed to be crude. It's supposed to get your attention so you click on it and you read it. And so I read it and you look at this and people sharing it, talking about it. Most people that I've seen like it. And in this article, the author is trying to make the point that I think I agree with. The author's saying, look, 
when a person becomes a new Christian, they don't look like and sound like and live like somebody who's followed Jesus for 20 years. They kind of just look like the person yesterday who didn't follow Jesus, except now they are following Jesus. And I think what the author of this article is trying to say is, look, when somebody comes to faith in Jesus, don't take all your man-made rules and press them down on, on new believers. And don't expect a new Christian to look exactly like Billy the Graham. Give them a little grace. Understand that we're all in this process of sanctification and none of us have fully arrived yet. And at one point in the article, the author writes these words. Let's put them up on the screen. You can't sanitize grace. You can't stuff it into a blue blazer and make it wear khakis. Grace is messy. Grace is messy. Okay, I get it. And the author goes on after this quote, and the, the author talks about, look at the disciples. They're just sort of a bunch of bumbling idiots. They're messing everything up, and they're making mistakes, and they don't understand, and they're saying crazy things, and they're doing crazy things. You just need to be patient with people. If they're not as obedient as you think that they ought to be, grace is messy. You can't just stuff it into some prefabricated church mold and expect people overnight to be perfectly holy folks. Okay, I agree with that. Fine. What really bothers me about the article is the tone of the article which suggests it's okay for a person who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ to persist in known sin unrepentantly. And the suggestion of the article that that you and I are supposed to look at that when we see it in our church and instead of talking to people about the issues in their life that need to change, instead of taking the speck out of our eye so that we can help somebody else with the log in their eye, we're just supposed to sit back and say, well, just let them be. Grace is messy. Wouldn't want to shove them into a blue blazer and khakis or anything. Just let them go on. Listen to me. Grace is messy, and God is patient with his people. But our failure to obey God in no way, shape, or form minimizes the call of Scripture to obey. And when you look at the people in our church family, our brothers and sisters in Christ, where there are things in our lives that are too messy, we're not going to just chalk it up to grace and say, well, you know, no big deal. They don't really look good in a blue blazer anyways. We're going to go to those people and we're going to say, listen, this is not me talking, this is the word of God talking. He didn't save you so that you could walk in sin, he saved you so that you could keep his commandments. Psalm 119, 146, I call to you, save me, that's grace, that I may, so that I may observe your testimonies. It's a parallel with Ephesians 2. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And when that happens to a person, God has already laid out beforehand. He has ordained and prepared the good works that he's calling them to walk in. Both of those things go together, and the psalmist understood that. So, God's word demands obedience. Number three, God's word gives life. God's word gives life. Look at verse 154. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Verse 156. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. 159. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according 
according to your steadfast love. Three times he talks about God's word giving him life. He's looking to the scriptures to find true and lasting life. You remember from history class, maybe first grade or a few years after that, the some of the Spanish conquistadors who came to the United States, many of them said openly they were looking for the fountain of youth or the fountain of life, looking for something tangible that they could put their arms around or drink down or take hold of that would give them life. They didn't find it. I read an article this week it was about a group of scientists. I don't know exactly what this means, but it said these, these scientists are hacking the code of life. Hacking the code of life. And they're looking at DNA and our genes and all this sort of genetic stuff, and they're piecing it all together. And these guys say, look, in a few years, we're going to be able to make people live well beyond 120 years. 120 will be nothing. We just sort of hack this code, and 120 will be young. And until we find that, or even probably after we find that, we'll keep fooling ourselves with fad diets and plastic surgery and just convince ourselves that we know how to create life when the reality is we don't. We don't. There is no fountain of youth, no fountain of life. The scriptures are clear. The wages of sin is death. You may bump it back from 80 to 90 to 100 to 120. Guess what? It's coming. Sooner or later. And in the grand scheme of things, one less wrinkle on your face and a few more years on earth is not going to make a whole lot of difference. And the psalmist understands what our culture is desperately searching for. Life is found here. And isn't it ironic that in our day and age, people think about the Bible and they think of it as a restrictive thing, as a confining thing, as a limiting thing, as God just sort of drawing circles around us, daring us to cross the lines, stay inside the lines and don't do this. And the psalmist has a completely different perspective. He says, it's not constricting. It's not limiting. It doesn't constrain me. It gives me true life. True and lasting life, he says, found in God's word. Number four, scripture, God's word evokes emotion. Emotion. It's not only an academic text that we study and analyze and break down, but it's something that ought to affect us in our hearts. Look at the text beginning in verse 161. Just pay attention to all the emotions mentioned. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe. There's an emotion of your words. I rejoice, another emotion, at your word like one who finds great spoil. Verse 163, I hate and abhor, two emotions, falsehood. Why? Because I love, another emotion, your law. Look at verse 165, great peace, there's an emotion, have those who love your law, nothing can make them stumble. I hope That's getting to your heart, your emotions. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. Listen, I hope that you study the Bible. I hope that you analyze it. You try to break it down. You try to make sense of it. You try to understand what the text says. But if the Bible only affects your thinking and never affects your feeling, there's a disconnect that needs to change. 
And I've met a lot of guys and a lot of gals in my life that they can connect the dots in scripture way better than I can. They can analyze it and break it down and look at the original languages and do analysis and all this stuff. They're brilliant, but it hasn't affected their heart. It doesn't affect their emotions. They look at this passage, verse 161 and following in this stanza, and they say, I don't, I don't know what the psalmist is talking about. I can analyze it. I can answer questions. I can tell you what it says, but it hasn't changed the way that I feel. And the psalmist says, no, 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 no. All the analyzing and study and breaking down the text in the world, apart from the word of God changing you in the deepest part of who you are, and shaking your emotions and changing your emotions, all of that study without the change in your heart is worthless. So it evokes emotion. Number five, the last one. It provides correction. And we're just going to look at the last verse in this Tav section, verse 176. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. To me, that's one of the most interesting verses in the entire psalm. And I love that it comes at the very end. After everything that he said about the scriptures, he ends with, I do not forget your commandments. I do not forget your commandments. But right before that, he says, I've gone astray like a lost sheep, and I need you to come find me. And I read verse 176, and I want to say, well, which one is it? Because it sounds like you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. Have you remembered the commandments, or have you gone astray? Because it doesn't seem like both of those things can fit together. And can I tell you the answer is they fit together. They fit together exactly like they fit together in Paul's life in Romans 7. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I don't do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Paul says, I know exactly what Christ has called me to do. I just seem completely incapable of doing it consistently. And I mess up again and again and again. And I know what I ought to be doing. And I know that my heart's been changed and I want to be doing those things, but I just can't do it. I'm continually, constantly falling him and failing him. I'm unable on my own to do the thing that I really want to do. And I think that's what the psalmist is talking about where he says, I don't forget your commandments. I know what you're asking of me, what you're calling me to. I also know that I've gone astray. And I know that I need you to seek me. This is what the hymn writer is talking about in the hymn, you may remember, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. When I was ordained in my home church, they asked me to pick the song that we would sing the end of the ordination and this is the song that I picked and this is the reason that I picked this song I think it's what Paul's talking about in Romans 7 and I think it's what the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 119 oh to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be let thy grace Lord like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee prone to wander Lord I feel it prone to leave the God I love here's my heart Lord take and seal it seal it for thy courts above That's the hymn writer saying, I know myself. And I know that I have this tendency deep in my heart to wander away from God and I need him to bind me close. I need him to tie me up close 
so I don't wander off. And that's Paul in Romans 7 saying, I know exactly what it is that I'm called to do, but I just don't do it all the time. I need God's grace in my life to change me and to forgive me and to empower me. And that's what the psalmist is saying. I know what your commandment is. I don't forget your commandment, but also know that I've gone astray like a lost sheep, and I need you to seek your servant. When you read that verse, it made me think this week about Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And as you come to the end of this great poem in the Bible and you see that we have gone astray, it's a reminder that there was one who never went astray, and his name is Jesus. That's one of the last things on your outline that you've got to take away from Psalm 119. There is one who never wandered, who never went astray, and his name is not Landon. His name is not Sally. His name is not Bob. It's Jesus of Nazareth. We've read this long poem about the Word of God. And most of the time we've spent our energies and our thoughts thinking about the written Word of God. But I want to remind you that Jesus in the New Testament is identified as the living Word of God. John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh. And he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh to seek and to save the lost. And he walked on this earth and he lived a life of perfect obedience to Psalm 119, to the rest of the scriptures. And at the end of his life, he died not for his own sin, but for our sin. We read about that in 2 Corinthians 5. The one who had no sin became sin for us so that through him we could become the righteousness of God. When you read Psalm 119, don't only walk away thinking it's talking about a book. Understand that it's talking about the Word of God, the written Word of God and the living Word of God. And that the things in Psalm 119 were ultimately fulfilled, not by me, not by somebody in our church, but by Jesus. The last thought I'll leave you with is, is this. It's about the Bible in your life. Psalm 119 gives us many reasons to make the Bible part of our lives. That means this is not an exhaustive list. Reading it, studying it, memorizing it, meditating on it, sharing it, and living it. All of those ideas found throughout Psalm 119. The psalmist not only describes for us what God's word is like, but he describes the role that it plays in his life. And sometimes it's reading or studying. Sometimes it's memorizing or meditating. Sometimes it's opening our mouth to share it. Sometimes it's living it out and obeying it. But if the scripture is going to be part of your life, this is what it looks like. It doesn't look like you have a copy of the Bible in your home. It doesn't mean that you carry a copy of the Bible with you to church on Sunday. It means it's really a part of your life. And some of you say, I don't even know how to do that. This is a long book, and I don't even know where to start. So there's lots of ways you could start. I'll just mention a couple. One is a resource called the One Year Bible. I use this every day. Not every day, just to be honest with you, but 
then I catch up when I'm behind. One year Bible, you open it up and it gives you the day's date and it's breaking down the scriptures. You don't read straight from Genesis to Revelation, but you read a little bit every day and at the end of the year, you've read the entire Bible. And it's helpful for me because it lets me know when I'm behind or when I missed a day and when I need to catch up. So this is a resource that I use. It comes in, this picture is the ESV version. It comes in any version you'd like to read it in. They have them. And it's a very helpful tool. It's a way for you to take God's word and to make it a regular part of your life. Some of you maybe don't want to do that. Some of you maybe say, I want to see the big picture. I need to understand the big picture. And I would say, why don't you just take five books of the Bible and read them over and over and over again. And these are the five that I would pick. Read Genesis, read Psalms, read Proverbs, the Gospel of John, and the Book of Romans. That's not going to get you everything that you need to know about God's Word. It's not going to cover all of the bases and connect all the dots. But I promise you this, if you understand those five books, you understand a whole lot of theology. And you understand a lot of the important storyline of the Bible. Not all of it, but that's a great start. And there are five books that you won't get discouraged with, you won't get frustrated with, you won't be too confused by. You just plow through those books. And when you get through Romans, you just go back to Genesis and read them again. When you get to Romans again, go back and read them again. Just read them over and over and over again. Look, I could give you a dozen ways to start making this book part of your life. I've given you two suggestions, but I'm not going to give you any more. And here's why. At the end of a study of Psalm 119, the last thing that I want you to do is to walk out of this room after a month of Psalm 119 feeling guilty and lousy and worthless because you don't read the Bible enough. And the big takeaway that you would have from Psalm 119, I don't want this to happen, is that you walk out and you say, well, I guess I have to read the Bible more. Preacher put all these plans up on the, I guess I got to start with Genesis, I I don't really want to, but he said to do it, and I feel like I ought to try to do what he said to do. I feel guilty. I haven't been reading enough, so I'm just going to try to do it. Listen to me. That's the exact opposite of what the psalmist is talking about. Psalmist is not trying to put any of us on some contrived guilt trip that we don't read the Bible enough. The psalmist is trying to get at your heart so that where you once said, I have to read it, I ought to read it, You now say, what a privilege that I get to read it. This book is not an obligation to me. The psalmist said it over and over and over again. We read it this morning. This book is my delight. I'm joyful and rejoicing that I have access to God's word and then I can read it in my language and then I can understand it and make sense of it. So we're not leaving with some sort of tricked up, trumped up feeling of you're just lousy and you need to read the Bible more and go buy this Bible or do this reading plan. That's not the point. The point is as we end Psalm 119 to see how it points us to Jesus and to also pray that God would change our hearts so that when we think about this book, we don't think about it as an obligation. We don't think about it as merely a duty or a responsibility, but we think of it as a delight. And so to that end, I want to pray for you. You bow And let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your word. And we pray that you would forgive us when we think about your word as an obligation, as something that we have to do. Father, that is sinful. It is self-centered. It's wrong. We have access to truth that is today and tomorrow and forever perfectly righteous. 
We have access to a book that gives us life, points us to your son. Father, forgive us when we see your word as an obligation and change our hearts so that we see it as an opportunity, as a blessing, as something that we actually delight in. Father, we pray for those in the room who maybe have been bound by the idea that they have to be good enough for you to save them. And we pray this morning that they would understand they can never be good enough. It is only through Christ who obeyed for us and who died for us that salvation is possible. It's a gift of your grace received by faith, not by works, so that none of us can boast. Father, we also pray that you would forgive us when we shortchange the work that you're doing in our life and we turn it only into a ticket for heaven and we fail to understand that you have laid out for us, you have determined and ordered our steps so that we would walk in obedience. Father, as we sing together, as we reflect on you and your great love for your people, we want to worship you in spirit and we want to worship you in truth. We pray that you would be honored in our singing, in our prayers, in our response to you. And we pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.